2: Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Bleep tests, making players vomit, banning snoods, getting it launched and beating the league leaders with 5% possession. Full house for everyone, playing Sean Dice bingo. A deserved win for Everton, which begs the question, is football actually really simple? Meanwhile, we count down all of Harry Kane's goals from 267 to 1. Sunday's wasn't one of his best, but crucial for Spurs in their quest for the top four and in helping Arsenal keep their five-point lead over City. Also today, Wolves beat Liverpool 3-0 and it isn't a surprise. A fun red card for Casemiro, but Man- Manchester United still win, Newcastle are held by West Ham, Nathan Jones reveals he's the best coach in Europe and leads a good but unlucky for the 20th game this season. All that plus pointless diving by goalkeepers, stinging criticism for the Puss in Boots 2 review, your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. Peter says this is the dream team, world-class journo, underrated pundit, plus of course Max and Barry. <laughs> Hello, Barry. <laughs> Hello, Max. I presume world-class journo is Jonathan Wilson. Welcome.
3: That's oh, it's very kind of whoever that was. Uh, morning. How are
2: And uh, Mark says, I'm very well, thank you. Mark says, does Nadam gargle with warm manuka honey mixed with baby's tears before he comes on the show? Hashtag sexy voice. You don't get that intro on Match of the Day, Nadam.
0: No, you don't, and I'm not going to reveal my secrets either.
2: <laughs> uh, let's start with that uh, slightly sinister, that sort of... We were actually looking for a Bond a Bond villain for the Micah Richards Bond movie. It could be you, I guess, couldn't it? Let's okay, start at okay. uh, Goodison. Everton won Arsenal nil, their first win in 11 games in all competitions. Sam says, and I sort of copied his question for the intro, is there anything more Sean Dyche than turning up in seven-degree weather in shorts, making players do the bleep test, then beating top of the league 1-0 with a defender scoring them from a set play? Uh, Jonathan, you were there. Uh, how was it?
3: It was one of those slightly odd games where you, you sort of, for 20 minutes, you sort of, oh, actually, Everton are sort of holding them and playing quite well. And then from about half an hour in, I was like, well, Everton are going to win this one nil. There's absolutely no no doubt. And as soon as the goal went in, I started writing. Andy Hunter was doing the match report and he sort of, you know, obviously had some much more, it's it's a harder thing to tweak than a, than a, a sidebar, than a colour piece. Because even if Everton had, could I could say, oh, you know, more structure here. They look better. You could see the dice improvement. And he was a bit twitchier, but I, I thought they were remarkably comfortable. I thought that midfield three, the central three of, of I mean, Rissage, I think played far better than he has done. Since his return, to Everton Anana uh, you know, has, has, has had a relatively good season by the context of in the context of Everton. Tokura, uh, he'd fallen out of favour. Frank Lampard, he's come back, and the three of them in the middle, I thought were all were all excellent. Calvert-Lewin had his best game for for a while. I mean, he was quite isolated early on, but you know, uh, once they switched the wingers, over, they seemed to seemed to be able to support him a bit better. I thought from from Everton's point of view, it was a really really impressive performance. You sort of thought well, they're, they're just not going to get relegated, but Arsenal were. Conversely,
2: really flat. Hmm. I mean, it does make you think, Naden, that football's really easy, right? What we not Is it just Frank Lampard really isn't good or Sean Dyche is good or you just go, keep <laughs> it simple, knock it long, hit the channels, two backs of four and you'll be fine?
0: You know, in terms of the knock it down the channels thing, from the bits that I saw of the game, they weren't doing that all the time. It didn't feel like I was watching Burnley, if you know what I mean. It feels like I was just watching a more front foot Everton side. I think they were exceptionally committed. I thought the midfield three did really well. And they did create some chances as well. But I think for the from the Arsenal perspective, they were doing the things which they've tried to do throughout the season. But it was just a sterner opposition. And I think that's the way to sort of perceive the second half of the season. Playing away from home is difficult, especially when people have you know their seasons on the line as such. And for the Everton team, they wanted to have a good impression with their manager. They were to impress their fans because it's been a long time since they've done that. And apparently, you know, all you need to do is just make them do a yo-yo test a week before the game starts to show that they're fit. And then that's it. And that, I've got to say, I've got to jump in here. I've got to jump in here, tell the story. Every manager I've ever had who came in after another manager was sacked was adamant that the team wasn't fit enough. And I'd love to know how that's a thing. Because surely the last <laughs> manager thought the same thing, but then all of a sudden he's made them not fit anymore. But fair play to them, he got the response. And I think for me... I think Frank Lampard, in my mind, and this could be way off the mark, is he's, he's potentially a good coach and a good manager. But I think for this Everton side, they needed somebody who can come in and not necessarily simplify it, but take away some of the, some of the idea of leaning towards risk, you know, coming back and trying to play in certain areas and the like. And I think the football that they're going to play between now and the end of the season is going to be one which is sort of, it's forward thinking, but doesn't make people feel uncomfortable that if they make a mistake, all of a sudden everything will go wrong because most mistakes won't be uh, encouraged by the manager, let's say.
2: David says, would the
0: pod like to make an apology
2: to the bleep test? Surely the big winner of this weekend's fixtures. You didn't see this coming, did you, Barry? Well, having to apologise to a
4: bleep test?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, we probably didn't see that coming, but we didn't see the result coming either.
4: No, I didn't. Uh, I must confess, I did not see this coming. And Arsenal were... Curiously flat, but they weren't given any moment's peace on the ball and, and Everton hassled and harried them. I mean, I was very impressed with Everton's performance, but Dice hasn't come in and in- reinvented the wheel here. They just seem to work a lot harder. And they probably should have won by more because they missed several good chances in the, the first half. Calvert-Loon missed a couple. De Kure missed one. I, I would be curious to know who, who was worst in the bleep test. So of, of all this... The unfit players, who was the most <laughs> unfit. Uh I've never done a bleep test. They look horrific, but um yeah, I, I want to know who who was first out. Were you a good bleep tester, Natum?
0: I was when I was uh when I was younger. Then as I got older and people started investing into their bodies and so on, before you know it, I was I was getting the same number basically throughout my career, but that just went further and further down in the rankings. All right. What is
2: it? What's your number? What's your, what's your well, number? It's
0: different because they're different ones, they're different bleed tests. And that one itself that they were doing looked like a yo-yo test where it's there and back and you've got to walk around some cones. So you're never actually standing still as such. Right. But it's a tragedy. But as time went on, it got to a point where keepers were really fit as well. So the traditional oh, right. like keeper goes out first, went out the window. And if you want to feel like really low is when you see a goalie standing next to you and they feel fine and you're dying. You're dying knowing full well the managers is looking across at you and like, yeah, just, I'll
2: fight through this. I'll fight through this. But yeah. When you lost to John Burridge in a bleep test, it was time to say. <laughs> this is, this <laughs> is fair. It's game that's, over. This it's is fair. game over. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Arsenal. They were flat and, you know, it's hard to tell if it was just Everton stopping them. Presumably other teams have tried to harry them and deny them space and things like that. What? Um, what I mean, looking looking ahead, and obviously we'll talk about City losing in a second. Like, how how big a deal is is this result for them? Do you think, and this performance?
3: I mean, I think it would have been a much bigger deal if if City hadn't lost. As it, as it is, they've they come out the weekend in a strong position. They went in because they're one game nearer the line, and they're still eight points or well, five points plus a game in hand. Clear. I I would be concerned by that because they were so. I know that they have probably had what three decent chances. The Ketia chance he put over. There was the mm-hmm. sack volley that was cleared off the line by Cody. Was it Cody? I think yep. it was.
0: Yeah.
3: And then there was the... Uh, Odegaard had a chance early in the second half. Uh, but it's the way they... I mean, they didn't create anything really, haven't gone behind. The fact that every, every Everton... Corner, or I say every, every The vast majority of Everton corners were just sort of in-swingers towards the, the back post. And Ramsdale looked uh, uncomfortable at that, which makes you wonder, why is nobody else sort of doing that? Because he's not the tallest keeper. You know, pop a ball on top of him and see what happens. Yeah, they they had a couple of half chances from corners even before the goal they got. So I think other teams will do that to Arsenal. I think that 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 would be a concern. Odegaard had I mean the first game I've seen him have this season, um, which I guess is to do with with how compact that Everton midfield was. Yeah, it's that it's that Ferguson thing, isn't it? It's not it's not necessarily the defeat it's how you respond to the defeat. And in a month's time, we might have forgotten about this. And it's just our Arsenal always have a bad record at Goodison. They haven't won in five years or whatever it is. Uh, or this might be the start of a big... What I really hope is this is a proper old-fashioned title race where the top teams do lose games and there are a few more twists than we've become used to. And I think you know, one of the big problems if teams win the title with 95, 99 points, whatever, is it's just not that exciting. Whereas if you're winning it with 85, 86 points and you do have these twists and you can... You know, the, the team that wins the title can lose a handful of games. I think that makes it much more exciting. So I mean, I think it's been a, a really enjoyable weekend of football for, for that.
2: Um, Cassianova finally on this game. Says, has anyone known noticed that while Deitch is anti hat, uh, his successor at Burnley, Vincent Company, seemingly can't take one off his head? Uh, maybe that's <laughs> how it goes. With you know, if you, you know, you like to change a manager, changes style. You bring in a tick a guy and then someone else. It's for Burnley, it's no hat, hat, no hat. They keep an eye on that because Company will probably be there for a while, won't he? Um, uh, let's go to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Then Spurs won City nil. Bizarre that City have lost five in a row at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and haven't scored. Um, Producer Joel was very happy with Citizens Caned for a headline for this game. Barry, Um, oh, he feels, just a bit, feels a bit contrived to me. But we should probably start with Harry Kane, Baz, because he is now Tottenham's record goalscorer, ahead of Jimmy Greaves. I mean, Jimmy Greaves did also score 132 goals in 169 games for Chelsea and get 13 for West Ham as well. So he's got a bit, bit of a way to go if we were to compare the two as goal scorers but it is some and
4: this is an open goal question but it is some record isn't it uh yeah hugely impressive record although I I I get slightly annoyed when I see that he he only has to pass Wayne Rooney and Alan Shearer to take the Premier League record you know because I think he's just inside the top 30 of all-time top flight scorers so uh but yeah, we only. Football wasn't invented before 1992 or whatever. Um, but yeah, very good record. Spurs were obviously very proud of him and they had all the stuff ready to go on the Jumbotron and the post match mutual backslap. slap. And, and he deserves that. It is a very impressive record. Although the goal with which he broke the record wasn't one of his better ones he kind of scuffed it into the ground (laughs) i think otherwise if it wasn't the record-breaking goal it wouldn't live long in the memory but they all count and this was the decisive goal and and that city record at the tottenham Hotspur stadium is quite remarkable considering how good a team they've brought there every on each of those five occasions
2: it's a bit of a shame isn't it that City didn't get two late goals and then Spurs insisted on doing the jumbotron and all the, you know, all, all that. the bells and whistles. You could see Spurs doing that. Exactly. Um someone on Match of the Day Nadem made an interesting point tactically about what
0: Spurs did in this game. Oh really. Would you like to re- would you like to repeat it? Oh gosh. Well, since you've given me the floor, be rude not to. Um so I think when we looked at Spurs, we see they've got a, they've got three centre-backs, the two wing-backs and so on and so forth. But interestingly in the game, Eric Dier in the middle, he was going out and trying to stick with one of City's midfielders. I think normally if you play at three at the back, you say to one of the centre-backs, you can go and be aggressive with a forward. But for him, he was really going and stepping out and applying the pressure. And that's what led to, um, to the goal for Kane. Because it was a point where he could have just comfortably been more conservative and gone to the halfway line, but instead he went and stuck to Bernardo Silva, which meant that Hoybier could go further forward. And he's the one who took the ball away from Rico Lewis, or rather Rico Lewis didn't touch it, but he was the one who could win the ball that high. And I think normally when we look at sort of conservative spurs at times, they would be more on the back foot. And I think they did that. And I think Dyer did that role very well, because at times if you were to, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about Rico Lewis coming inside, playing the midfield, so on and so forth. But Dias spent a lot of time outside of that back three to the point where at times he's he's literally in line with Hojbjerg, with Bentancourt, but we're not really noticing it, not really discussing that. And that was a nice little tactical wrinkle that they had because it is different. But then it also made me think from a City perspective, if he was going to be doing that, then it'd be better to not play with two strikers and then maybe get someone like a Kevin De Bruyne there alongside Bernardo Silva, because then Dias faced with a dilemma, which one do you choose to go to? And can he do it himself or does he have to bring somebody back? But... It was a nice wrinkle that they had there in that game yesterday, and it made a, I think it made a, a big difference for them. That level of aggression it led to the goal, and then they got the result. But then again, should we be surprised? That's just what they do against City at that stadium.
4: Uh, I thought Leon Osman made some very interesting points on Match of the Day two <laughs> last night, and one of them was to highlight, you know, how Haaland's runs weren't being picked out, but the, they also flagged up the the number of touches he had in the box, in the Spurs box, zero compared to the number of touches Harry Kane had in the Manchester City box, which, which was 10, despite Manchester City completely dominating possession. I think it was up around 70% or not. And I, Haaland would cut a very forlorn figure. You could see him getting narkier and narkier as the game progressed. And one wonders, like w- will he have had a go at his teammates after the game, or does he accept that they, they are going to fanny around tippy-tapping around the box when they should be just hoying it towards him or picking out his runs. I, I don't know. Yeah, if, if I was him, I would be very annoyed.
3: I, I also don't know if he's being asked to change the way he plays. And and the only reason I say that is I, and I'm very conscious that as a journalist, you can massively overblow these things because this sort of thing happens all the time. It's just you happen to notice it once. And so in, in the derby, there was a moment in the second half when, when City were still 1-0 up when there was a player down, it was sort of a stopping player for two or three minutes, and Guardiola was, was actually on the pitch. He was three or four yards on the pitch. He was so keen to get the message across to Holland, And from his hand gesture, he seemed to be telling him to to drop deeper. And he was, you know, as if he was saying, sort of, you know, play almost as a false nine, which, you know, it doesn't seem like Haaland's actual game. And Holland's body language back was, you know, it was like a teenager being told to clean his room. It's, like, yeah, all right, what are you going to do? And, and that suggested to me there was a bit of uh, a disconnect there uh, and that and I haven't looked at the stats since, but that that game, Holland had, I think, 19 touches in the game. The previous season when City had won so comfortably United, it was 2-0, but it was a total sort of walkover. The fewest touches any player had had on the City side was 70 71, I think 70-something anyway. So that type of you know that 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 way of dominating and controlling game three possession, the previous season required the ten outfield players all to have a minimum of 70 touches. He got one of them having Fewer than twenty. Well, that's a major change to to the, to the basic structure of the team, and I'm not sure still that that's been you know, even as close to being reconciled.
2: You know, it seems so obvious, Nathan, that you can t- to launch it occasionally, like it's not a crime. <laughs> but maybe Pep feels it's a crime, and i sort of laughed that, you know, Pep would win everything with Haaland and be depressed about it because they'd be playing not the perfect football. But like, just just do it sort of once every fifteen minutes at least, like that that because then the defenders don't know what's going to happen, right?
0: Yeah, that, that's um, that's true. And to, the idea of getting launched sounds so simple, but its it serves a purpose. You know, this is what it was like when we were watching Liverpool say in years gone by when they've been better. It'd be a ball from like, get ball gets set to John Henderson, Henderson, just spins it down the channel, Salah's running down there, or Robertson plays the channel ball, Mane's running down there. There's just something about keeping the defensive line honest, because at times yesterday, Spurs were going man for man. And that would be a bigger problem if they were worried about what's going on, about the space behind them, but they never really had to run into it, and I think it, it for me it makes sense to do that. But because it happens so little, I just keep thinking, well, it must be by design because the player is good enough to be able to sense that. And in Haaland, they've got one of like the Premier League's quickest and strongest players. I wouldn't want to be one on one with Haaland on the halfway line, knowing that that there's thirty yards of space behind me. Like make the other team have to really worry about that. Like in the lead up to the goal yesterday. There were a couple of times when Rodri probably could have done it. And instead, you know, they want to show the personality to play it around and so on. And that's good, but what's the value of possession without territory? Because the prime example was for that goal yesterday because the moment you make a mistake, it leads to a goal, which was the same as what happened when they played Spurs two weeks ago. Yeah, I I want to see it. For the amount of space that they created because Spurs were pressing that high, now use it, play stuff a bit higher, play stuff a bit longer. And the players that play up top all across the board, they're not slow. And even if you think that they're not as quick as they could be, like the matchups are still fine just chance it every so often because it'll make the other team uncomfortable. And I think for looking at, say, a team like Spurs, they did that quite well. They'd play some stuff out from the back. But then before you know it, you're playing it longer. Kane's getting his body in. There's a flick. There's the people running behind. There's a change of tempo. But if you insist on everything being short all the time, then you can't really find that change of tempo. And like I say, just to put the thing on it, I don't think City were that bad. I don't think they were that bad. But it felt like that was what was missing from that game yesterday. And if they would have managed to have it, then I think it would have been a different result.
2: Yeah, and actually Spurs were good. You know, we've talked about Son yeah. not playing well a lot of the time in the season. He actually looked really sharp, I thought, yesterday. Um, Heuberg had a really good game. Emerson Royale, who, you know, is a sort of, uh, you know, a scapegoat a lot of the time, had an excellent game. And I, and I wonder, Barry, if, if actually Tottenham fans and actually the players are happier playing this containing football, even if it was slightly more aggressive than normal, because they're playing City, right? The players and the fans go, it's all right, City can have the ball lot, But when you try and play this against, I don't know, Aston Villa, everyone gets a bit on edge going, we should just be playing scintillating attacking football. And it's
4: quite hard to change how you play the whole time. Yeah, you may well have a point. I mean, I, I, the players look happier with that. But Spurs don't, if I'm not mistaken, they don't have a particularly good record against... Fellow Big Six teams, am I right? It's, it's pretty bad this season. Yeah, so, so that suggests maybe they aren't. You'd have to ask them, Max,
2: to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> uh, Pep did say afterwards coming from Manchester to London, it's like going to Northern Europe. It's four hours, 20 minutes to get to a hotel. It's so exhausting. I'm sorry. So, you know, um, pray for Pep. And the
3: city lads. Is that- but, but okay, I I, mean, I, I don't, know. I, I didn't see that in context. That comment, and it maybe was just an offhand comment. And he's right. The trains are the nonsense. And there's somebody who, yeah, had to go up a quarter to six on Saturday morning. Didn't get back to London till eight pm. Going up to Liverpool trains on a, Avanti are the worst train provider we've ever had. And that, that's a really, it's a really tough competition. We we lead the world in terrible trains. And, and so I, I'm, I'm with him on that but surely that also means that when London clubs go to Manchester they're knackered by the train journey and also you know, what a job Eddie Howe's doing have you seen her far away castle Newcastle <laughs> uh, Jim
2: says would you rather Spurs win the FA Cup or your Subaru comes back safe with a nice smelling air freshener inside I would really rather my car return frankly
1: um, excuse the selfishness alright uh, that'll do for part one part 2 we'll begin at Molineux
2: Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, David says, any chance you give Wolves some praise and not talk about Liverpool for the whole analysis like every other media outlet? Yeah, Liverpool in crisis, aren't they, Barry? No, okay, come on then. <laughs> uh, um, James Bird from Monday Al's dad will be happy, won't he, Barry? And, and, and you suggested to James's dad, um, if you were listening on Thursday, to include Craig Dawson in his list of possible goal scorers ahead of this
4: game. Yes, and he duly obliged. And it wasn't a header from a set piece, which uh, I didn't have that on my bingo card, I must say. But Wolves were very impressive. They've brought in some new signings, six in total, I think, at a cost of about 80 million. Several of them were very impressive in this game. Uh, Sarabia, Mateus Kuna, Mr. Dawson. I thought they thoroughly deserved the win was pretty confident they would win i didn't think they'd win 3-0 scoring goals has been a problem for them uh scoring goals against a liverpool team oh you see we've already stopped praising wolves now <laughs> <laughs> scoring goals against a liverpool team that is just becoming increasingly easy to play against yeah shouldn't be a problem for any team really uh, they're a mess but yeah, hats off to Wolves. This was very impressive. Yeah, we had
2: a great text, didn't we, on, on the radio yesterday. We were talking about what a great day for Everton that was. They beat Arsenal and then they're in the pub. And And uh, a listener said, look, that the first post-game pint arrived just as Liverpool conceded their first goal. It's like a dream Saturday for Everton fans, even though, you know, Wolves are struggling as, uh, along with them. and um, it's hard to. It, I suppose what's interesting, Wilson, is it just wasn't surprising. This I wasn't surprised at all, and and that is again saying more about Liverpool than it
3: is about Wolves. It feels different to when this happened. Uh, was it twenty to twenty-one when they had that terrible? Yeah, they lost the six home games in a row, whatever it was. It's it, it sort of because you can't see where it comes back. Um, there seems to be problems everywhere in that team. Uh, that the new players they brought in don't seem to have have worked in the way that Liverpool signings always used to work. Um, Klopp seems very much on edge now. There's, and it always happens when teams get in a bad run. There's all kinds of sort of little rumours coming out of the dressing room about unrest. Um, yeah, Salah hasn't played well since before the Cup of Nations. It's, it's, and I guess it's the nature of that sort of very sort of coherent system that when one thing goes wrong, it, it sort of spins massively out of control. But it, it sort of feels like we've entered the Klopp endgame very quickly, sort of a month ago, I wouldn't have thought that. But now, I mean, they haven't won a game in the league this year, have they? And his his demeanour seems to have changed. So it it's, yeah, I, I don't know how they put this right.
0: Jonathan, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I was reading a report earlier and the headline is pressure mounts on Klopp. But does is there pressure on Klopp? Because surely, I feel like he's the one that basically decides whether he stays at Liverpool or he doesn't. Like, I can't picture him getting sacked.
3: Yeah, I, I don't think he'd be sacked. I mean, I think... Yeah, I mean, if anybody's got credit in the Banker team and the fact he has had one of these bits before and then put it right. And I think you can reasonably say, yeah, you look for reasons why this has happened. To get so close to in the quadruple last year, I guess there's always going to be a reaction. They've had loads of injuries. It's a season where they've been trying to sort of refresh the squad that a few players had got, got old and they haven't really been able to do that because of all the injuries. But I, I wonder if he's sort of, Thinking that that maybe it's time for a change. I wonder. Yeah, if you're him, and you look at that side, and 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 you see things like Thiago just letting whoever it was go for the third goal with Neves. He let go for it.
2: Neves. Yeah, it was a lovely touch from Neves, but yeah. Yeah,
3: but uh, I mean, and and um, uh, Tiago had done that the Arsenal game earlier in the season, wasn't it? He just lets let somebody run past him. So I "Think, well, you know, if if players just aren't doing some sort of fairly basic things." Yeah, the, the defending the first two goals, as you know, as, as Klopp said afterwards, you just know, you know, there's just no sort of urgency there. And does he sort of look at this and think, uh, you know, this is the third time in his career that he's got to seven years at a club. The previous twice he's ended it. Is is this also the seven years up? I, and I, I yeah, you know, two three weeks ago, I wouldn't have said that. Now it sort of feels feels as if it it might be getting to the end.
2: Paul says, when do you think Klopp will bring? Vout face back as Liverpool's top goalscorer <laughs> since the World Cup. Seems a little unfair not to play him. That was their last league win, uh, December the 30th. 2-1 against Leicester. Four league games since then. Um, next game is against uh, Inform Everton uh, on uh, Monday the 13th. Johnny says, hasn't you try enjoyed the laughter at Man United and Ten Hag and how it was all going wrong? And the pod said it was hilarious. That energy is missing with Liverpool's current form. Why is that? Is it more serious? Why isn't Liverpool being bad funny, Nadim? I don't understand I, I, I agree, it doesn't seem funny to me, but maybe I don't think I have an agenda on, on, on this. I think you do. I think you have a massive agenda actually, Max. Fair <laughs> right, right. Just just come out and say it on it Um actually there was a question fire I had for you, you know, which was Jürgen Klopp was getting so angry and he kept yelling at Jordan Henderson and James Milner who were behind him. I just thought they were sitting there going, we've picked the wrong seats here. <laughs> and I don't know when, I don't know, obviously you were mainly yeah. not on the bench, but when you were, did you try and sit yeah, far and, away? Yeah, or do only, you have like, are there specific seating? Like, only, is there like, see, you know?
0: I only sat on the bench once in my career, actually, Max, it was by accident. Um, no, um, I think it depends because for those two, they're obviously the senior players within the squad. You, clearly likes him in terms of setting the tone and stuff for the character of the football club but then also if you've got that many issues like just play them just literally just play them like you're shouting at two people who can't affect anything that's going on on the field so just put <laughs> it's like just put them on like oh you guys like what are you do <sighs> sorry boss you know i'm still just here sitting on the sideline and he's i get his, <laughs> I get his frustration especially after like this the start is so bad like that first goal is so so bad but especially given the fact that you would have said before the game, "Hey guys, you know it's important to start well. This is the, this is it. Now we're going to turn the corner. Everything's going to be good." And then, like fifteen minutes in, you're two 0 down away from home, thirty thousand people singing, and your team's got nothing going for it. Like it must be so frustrating. And I think the fact that he can vent to two players is possibly a good thing, but it's just a bit awkward as well because, like, what difference did it make? Answer: Nothing. Nothing at all. Yeah.
2: I suppose. I suppose with Wolves, um, Baz, it's. It's interesting, when a team play well and look good and win, and then we sort of go, well, they'll probably be fine. You know, Everton, they'll be fine. But a lot of the teams down the bottom string a couple of results together, and a lot of teams down the bottom have a lot of really good players. And so, you know, Wolves are, what, two points off the relegation zone. This is not the time to
4: relax. I think on current evidence, or let's say evidence since changes were made and players were brought in, I, I think everyone will be fine except Southampton and Bournemouth. So that means one team isn't going to be fine, uh, who who I currently have staying up. Um, and who knows, Southampton and Bournemouth could yet turn it around. It's it looking quite unlikely. Uh, I suppose Leeds are the other interesting one. They look as if they should be fine, but they keep getting beaten. Uh, so I I definitely think there is no... Chance whatsoever of wolves getting relegated, and it's not just on the evidence of that performance. I thought they were playing quite well under Bruno Lage at times, but they were losing and they weren't scoring. So, um, if they can, if they can start maintain, you know, reasonable scoring frequency, then I suspect there won't be any chance of them going down.
2: You mentioned uh, Southampton and, and Leeds. there. let's do their games. Then Southampton lost three nil at Brentford, and uh, we will talk about. At Brentford, because we got an interesting message saying, you never talk... I mean, people say you never talk about every club, but actually made quite a good point. But Nathan Jones' quotes um, were, were great at the end, weren't they? Um, I've compromised, he said. I've compromised in terms of certain principles because of one, personnel, but two, the way the people want to play and so on. I've compromised because of fans and so on. A few little things, but no more. I've been very successful playing a fluent style. Luton were a real aggressive front-footed side, statistically... There weren't many better than me around Europe in terms of aggression. It's quite hard to sort of get. You know, the most, I'm the most aggressive man in Europe. That sounds like something someone on The Apprentice says, <laughs> isn't it? Um, clean sheets, defending the box, balls in the box, XG, all these sort of things. We were pound for pound the best because we were spending next to nothing and producing so much. And I've gone away from that. Naden, what's he talking about?
0: Uh, uh, <laughs> he's talking about how nobody should doubt him because he's the greatest that was, that's ever done it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Those are very, very strong words for a manager that's bottom of uh, the Premier League and is, is currently not really having much go for him. Um, but he backs himself, you know. I've heard it a few times since he's been in in charge there where you can sort of hit, you can gather like he likes it. Like I think when they beat Man City in the Carabao Cup, he was, he was having a few digs that like there were people, managers in the non-league who have been trying to criticise me and so on. So okay,
4: okay Nathan, go on then, go on, let just let's speak get it off your chest. I'm not sure he does believe in himself. I think he came perilously close to talking himself out of a job there because we all know what a great job he did at Luton. That's why he got the Southampton job. <laughs> so you know, you don't have to tell us how, how good, well you did at Luton. We know and you were rewarded for your good work um getting them to the playoffs despite having I think the second lowest budget in the the championship brilliant you've been rewarded and now you're saying that you you've compromised your principles and you've pandered to players because they're you know premier league players they're not luton players um and that that's not good enough for the amount of time he's been there and he he constantly I've, I've mentioned this before the only time he ever refers to southampton as we us is when they do well. They've done well in a few cup games. Whenever they get beaten, it's they. You know, they refers to the player, <laughs> they, them, and refers back to the past, previous regime. So the fans, well, quite a sizable proportion of the fans don't want him there. Um, that kind of talk isn't going to endear him to anyone, even if it's what he believes or it's tr- even if it's true. To say it after a performance in which they were absolutely dismal and soundly thrashed just seemed very weird to me. He, he does look and sound like he's a bit out of his depth, but they did beat City in the the cup. They did show they have shown signs of life under him, but they didn't show any at Brentford.
2: I'm just wondering who the most aggressive man in Europe is. It's quite quite. Difficult company here in the whole
0: of Europe. It's Nathan Jones constantly starting on people. The point that Barry made, which I hadn't actually noticed about the they versus you know us thing. I once had that um and I'll I'll preface this say maybe he's changed, maybe he's changed. But when I was a QPR, that's what it's like with Harry Redknapp. If we won, Harry'd done such a great job and everything was fantastic. But every time we lost, they the players weren't good enough. And that was coming from like him and the media side of things. And I wanted to know, like, what would you guys feel like if you were literally a player in that situation whereby no matter what happened, it was never going to be about anything you've done well Because if you've done well, it's because of somebody else. And if you've done badly, like, this is all on you. I like the idea that maybe he's changed. I mean, surely he's retired now. You're just saying, like, if
2: dinner goes well, it's like, we made a great dinner. If dinner, is shit. He's like, Sandra, you've really fucked it this time. (laughs) (laughs) Chris says, recently, Brighton have garnered a lot of deserved coverage with how they've handled the... Potter departure and seem to have further improved under the new manager. Further with how well Fulham have done after their recent promotion and how Leeds and Forest are doing with their new managers and slew of signings, more so in terms of Forest, all have received plenty of coverage on the pod and elsewhere. My issue is with the basic non-coverage of Brentford compared to these other clubs. I'm not sure it's because they don't have a history in the top flight or they don't have many, if any, supporters who are journalists, but it seems perplexing they aren't discussed more often. This comes from an American perspective. My exposure to British coverage of soccer is limited to the Guardian, the BBC and a handful of other podcasts, uh, Mike Calvins and Stadio, both good ones primarily. So I may miss plenty of coverage, but I think a bit more parity is in order. It is fair to say, Barry, we don't cover Brentford extensively. I'm beaten in nine in the league, six points off the top four. Why don't we? Do we have an anti-Brentford
4: agenda? Absolutely not. I think I think maybe it's a compliment to them. Well, A, I don't necessarily agree that we don't cover them extensively. Uh But if that is the case, it's probably a compliment insofar as kind of expect them to do well. I mean, I said in a recent pod, if not the last pod we did, that they and Brighton are probably the two best clubs or they're the two best run clubs in the UK and possibly the world. I'm not sure how much more complimentary I can be.
3: And you've also, uh, you've you've very much flown the flag for Ethan Pinnock. (laughs) Yes.
2: No one has given Ethan Pinnock more coverage than you, Barry. Let's face it. I don't think Ethan Pinnock has been mentioned. I think he's mentioned by anyone else
4: in the coverage of the Premier League since he was in the Premier League. And you have been... Well, he he joint blocked, I think, what was Southampton's only shot in that game. Theo Walcott uh, took a shot. And cold. it was possibly going in. And Ethan Pinnock uh, helped block us, with, uh, ably assisted by Mads Rorslev. So, you know, another sterling performance from Ethan. Have we not
0: spoken about Ben Mee before? Does that of not course, count? Of course, the bright yeah, lights. And the bright lights of West London. 100% so, we have. So we have mentioned them. And what a season he's having, by the way. Clearly he's made for the South. And also,
3: betraying some Brentford to my, my flat, uh, really easy. Like oh, I, right. I, I'm all for Brentford getting into Europe, saying so just toddle along on a Wednesday night. Is that Southwest trains?
2: Is that that's not an event? Southwest night? trains. Are they, are they yeah. pretty, where are they in the Where are they in the gamut of train
3: services? Let's Let's not pretend they're brilliant, but compared to Avanti, they're I don't know what's the I was about to, I mean, What's the greatest ever train service? I don't know. <laughs> can we compare to Avanti? they the trains in Mussolini's Italy. <laughs> no, I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, uh,
2: Forest beat leads one nil. A wonderful finish from from Brennan Johnson. And Keylor Navas, him, which just, it, it looks weird, him playing at the city ground for Nottingham Forest. But he did play really well, didn't he? Yes,
0: yeah, we worth seeing him there. And in my mind, I thought, surely there would be another goalkeeper somewhere who could fill the gap while Henderson's out. There isn't someone who's won multiple Champions Leagues, yet still, that's what they felt they needed. Obviously, it's probably quite tricky, I imagine, given these wages and so on to sort of put him into the side. But he came in, Cooper said he's been trying to understand the culture of the football club and he wants to play. And what a better way to start in the Premier League than to keep a clean sheet and to get some stud marks in your face from something you did, like, literally 20 minutes into the game. Welcome.
2: So has he been reading books about Brian Clough? I mean, I presume, Wilson, you've written all of them.
3: I've written one of them, yeah. The biggest one. Mm. D- Not to say the D- best, Kalo but never... definitely the longest. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there we go. Did we sent one to
2: Kalor to say, here you go? This will help you. I mean, uh, we should talk about Leeds, Barry. Nathaniel says, when have you been worse at your job than Jesse Marsh, but kept your job? I mean, I don't want to say it again, but I thought they were, I mean, especially in the first half, <laughs> they looked really good. I thought they were incredibly unlucky in this game.
4: Uh, I don't think they were particularly unlucky. Uh, after the game, he said, we're struggling to per- turn performances into results. Uh, staging the blindingly obvious because... They were certainly the better team in the first half. They created far more chances. They couldn't score any. And then the second half, they pretty much ran out of ideas and got frustrated. And in the end, it was a very comfortable win for Nottingham Forest. I think there was one moment during the game uh, where Sam Sur- Surridge uh, shot narrowly over, you know, a curled effort. and. I think the BBC commentator said we were, I think everyone in the city ground was expecting him to score that. And I'm (laughs) thinking not if they saw him again, his his game in the FA Cup against Blackpool, they weren't. (laughs) But um, yeah, uh, it is a problem. Leeds are quite good to watch. They were good yesterday in the first half, but the results aren't coming. And the fact, you know, that's the kind of game they really need to be getting something from. And I, it wouldn't be a huge surprise to see Jesse, Jesse Marsh become the latest American manager to fail in the Premier League and lose his job. But I, I still think there's a good team in there, but they're not getting the, the points
2: on the board, are they? Do you think Bielsa would go back, Will? Do you think he'd go back and say, I'll do the 23s for six months? I
3: don't know, maybe. I mean, he, he was there longer than he was anywhere else. Um, there was you know, clearly a lot of affection there. Um, I don't know whether it would be a good idea. But I, I think you know the, the point Barry made earlier is, is is the the opposite one here that it looks like Southampton and Bournemouth are in big trouble, and then there's actually no other obvious sort of poor side, and, and Leeds are now are currently the ones who look like they're they're not in form, but I suspect their underlying numbers are good because I mean what, what, but they've won what two in the last seventeen is that right? But just when you watch them, it doesn't look like that. But so what? But I don't know why that is. I can, I find them inexplicable. I don't, I don't get it.
2: Yeah, Jesse Marsha is so positive that even if they lose, they still play like they're winning, you know, which is great until the end of the season when you realise haven't won any games, but you're still incredibly positive. Anyway, that'll do for part two. Uh, part three, I'll begin at Villa Park.
1: I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect.
2: Welcome to part three, the Guardian Football Weekly. Villa 2, Leicester 4. Hard to know what to ask about this game, Nadem. I, I don't really have any sort of stirringly interesting questions, apart from I really enjoyed it. I didn't expect Leicester to win. I don't know if anyone else did, mm. but they did. I mean, I'm
0: sorry, maybe yeah. I've lost my ability to do my job. This is it. No, it's fine, it's fine. We all we, we all do that. And I'm next up, I'm thinking the exact same thing. Like, uh, well, uh, I, I fancied Villa before the game. Not necessarily just because Leicester haven't been in the best of form, but because Villa have been in great form. It seemed like they turned the corner everything was going well. They took the lead. And you're thinking, well, they're just going to carry on from here. So for the game to finish four-two, to concede four goals at home to a side who aren't pulling up trees by any means, it was a, it was a strange one. But it's just a reminder, and you know, I, I'm I've, I'm very appreciative of being able to come and speak about football because I think at times it's very easy to forget how competitive the Premier League actually is. And in any given moment, any particular day, a team can come and sort of upset you like that. And it always seems to come at the point where you believe that, yeah, everything's going well. We'll figure this out. We'll beat this team. We'll beat that team. And that's it. This is is football for you. I think it's good for Leicester to have Madison back. You can see the impact that he has within that side. And for them, obviously, they're not going to be pushing for much this season. But just that sense of safety, not having to continually look behind them and worry if they're going to drop into the bottom three could be key. And an away win... Is always fantastic in the Premier League, especially when you're down near the bottom. And to score four goals away as well. So many boxes are ticked there. And that's hope. That's excitement. This gets you really ready for the next game where you hopefully be playing in front of your fans and put on a similar sort of performance.
2: Actually, there there is an interesting question about the goals that they conceded. And there were a lot of them were just sort of playing it out from the back. And obviously the way that City conceded their goal as well. And it's sort of widely assumed that we know that it is it can be a good thing to play out from the back, right? It, it it helps you. There are, it isn't just as simple as what are you doing keeping the ball back there, just knock it long. But it, and I don't know if it's right to say our people, our team's going too far the other way, but there are some really terrible decisions being made. You know, Kamara there, um, Rodri for City. And, and you just sort of think these are quite key moments in football matches.
3: Yeah, there was a, it was a line of um, Jorge Valdana during the World Cup. Um, and it, I mean, you know, classic Baldano sort of slightly overstating it, but I thought the point was very good. The teams now tend to take more risks in their own box than in the opposition box. That you, you know, no, Nobody's allowed to have a shot from 25 yards now because that's wasting possession because you know, the, the XG of a 25-yard shot is so low. But it's fine to sort of roll the ball to a centre midfielder under pressure from two players 20 yards out. I don't know. I think it's a really interesting thing that's happened in the game in the last sort of 10, 15 years. And... I think it's it's happened all the way down the pyramid that you, you you watch teams in the. I mean, I went to see CM Red Star uh, season before last against Ashington, and they were passing it out from the back, and I, I sort of I was just, I sort of I hadn't watched that level of football for years. I was bewildered by well, why are they doing it? And I was sort of I, I was chatting about it, and, and people said, I oh, because the pitches are way better because everybody's got these you know the pitches with the. the whatever they are, the fibres in. So pictures even at that level are better. Mm, yeah. And so kids coming through uh, uh, you know, from, from a very young age are told that's the way to play. But we now almost don't sort of, you know, if, if so, you know, a couple of those, those Leicester goals or, or, or the Spurs goal, if that had happened 10 or 15 years ago, it would have been seen as being this horrendous blooper that we would never have stopped talking about. And yet now we're sort of like, oh, well, know, yeah, that's what happens if you play like that. And we seem to just have accepted it. But maybe it it isn't being organised as well as it could be. Maybe there are ways of of assessing the risk better.
2: I asked Barry this on the radio, Nate. I might ask you as well. For Ollie Watkins' goal, if Danny Ward doesn't dive, because he's not going to get that ball when Buendia hits it, he just catches it off the bar. So should goalkeepers dive (laughs) less is my question.
0: (laughs) Ah, that's such a great question and a stupid question at the Thank same you. time should goalkeepers dive less um,
4: I think that's more or less exactly what I said Max to be honest
2: <laughs> like he can't get it like, like he can't he's diving because instinct has taught him that's how he, what he should do but he's not Okay. He's not going to get the ball. Like, there's no chance of him, unless it's, unless he turns into Inspector Gadget at exactly that moment.
0: You say that, but then if you see just goalkeepers where shots are going in and say they can't get to it and it goes in anyway, if you saw them not diving, you think they're not well, trying. Yeah. Think of it from that perspective. So what do you want, Max, really? What well, do you I wanted want? to say I
2: wasn't going to get it, so I thought it might hit the bar and then I'd just catch it and then I'd, you know, kudos to Danny Ward. Okay,
0: so that's how skilled, that's how skilled they are now, that they anticipate <laughs> when it's going to hit the bar and they can just get up and exactly. catch it afterwards. Exactly. Good work, Max. Good work. Top potting,
3: uh, But also, also from a lesser <laughs> point of view, uh, they had three new signings playing, and both Teta and Christiansen I thought were excellent. So that looks positive for them going forward.
2: And Harry Souter did score an own goal. And Harry Suter, sorry, yeah, yeah. He, he is enormous. I, d-
3: um, I, I, I just forgotten the. You uh,
2: separated him on purpose, yeah. didn't you? I just yeah, forgot yeah. who it was, Real even though he scored an own goal. Yeah, he nine- was hopeless.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the other two were great. <laughs> no, he played quite well, actually,
2: but I did I did look at Valt Fass, who was right next to him when he scored the own goal, just to see if he got furious or if he'd remembered <laughs> what happened. Uh, and, yeah.
3: I, I know you're taking the automatic pro Australian line now.
2: Yeah. He's quite <laughs> I mean, he's quite Scottish, isn't he? Uh, anyway, let's go to Old Trafford. Man United two, Crystal Palace one. Uh, Martin says regarding the handball law, were Casemiro's arms in a natural position when when he got his red card? <laughs> I mean, it was the most interesting part of this game, actually. Producer Joel said, "I'm not sure why there's a debate about this. He has his hands around Will Hughes' throat, but I thought it was quite a harsh red. I agreed with what he didn't. He didn't have him around
3: his throat though. No,
2: they were on his shirt.
3: That's oh. the odd thing that when you when you see the first, you know, because I you know, I was on the train back and saw the still of that and thought, well what what's what are they moaning about? He's got you know, if he's if he's throttling somebody, you can't complain about. But then there's an angle they showed a match of a day from behind, and he his hands aren't on his throat, they're sort of on his shoulders. It's just a weird optical illusion.
2: And also if it's a big melee, isn't it unless you punch someone, Barry, it's just kind of
3: throats are different though, aren't they? You can't think throats are different. Grabbing people's throats,
2: yeah.
3: Um throat's different you can't kill somebody by squeezing their shoulders.
2: I bet someone on Star Trek could, you know, or someone of those, like, couldn't they? In a special hold or something. But you know, but like Casimir is unlikely to murder Will Hughes in this in this
4: melee, isn't it? You know, like everyone's if, just if pushing he had, each other. would you be? <laughs> If he had, would you be prepared to concede it was a straight red card?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think so. No, that would yeah. that
3: would seem like excessive force to me.
2: <laughs> I think probably right. We just don't we don't know how you know he's got a slender Will Hughes, isn't he? You know? He could have a sort of a wafer like anyway, yeah. You know, I think the pod would be different, wouldn't have If a murder had been committed on the pitch at Old Trafford. Anyway, I thought it was a bit harsh. I think, you know, if had a big melee, send them all off or, or don't send any of them off and um and crack on. Eleven goals for Rashford since the World Cup. Nineteen uh, this season in all competitions. And they look—they survived the late onslaught, didn't they? Um, Palace, Nadem have five points in the last eight games. Should they start to worry at all? You know, with all these teams below them, apart from Southampton, Bournemouth, and Leeds, doing bat- doing well. Perhaps not
0: like a full-blown worry as such. In terms of what the other teams are doing, I think for themselves, it would just be a case of trying to find some better form. But as it stands, it's not. It doesn't feel to me like there's that sense of desperation just yet. You know, the windows happen now. There's no more indecision about who's coming, who's going. This is what you have to finish the season. And I think they can find something. They're probably a couple of wins away from feeling far more comfortable and just enjoying the football that little bit more. So I personally wouldn't be that worried about them just yet. But give it a month and before you know it, they could very much be down in there and be searching for results because everyone else is around them and really affecting the way that they're playing. But I think losing away to Man United, Old Trafford, seems to be a common theme at the moment for everyone. So I wouldn't go over the top about that. And you just
4: keep the faith, I guess. I think if you're sort of drawing a line above teams who might go down, you would draw above Palace. Uh, So they're not safe in that regard. But I think... You're only drawing it above Palace because the notion of Liverpool going down is so preposterous. But, you know, could you draw the line above Liverpool? Well, the way they've got,
2: well, I mean, they've got 29 points. Other, You know, they are, what, 11 points ahead of Everton with a game in hand. It would be quite... Look, they've fallen off... The I'm, I'm,
4: I'm going on Saturdays. I don't have a table in front of me, but I'm going on Saturday's table when I think Liverpool were just above Palace. I, is that still the case? Uh, Villa
2: in between them. But, yes... Okay. Um, uh, uh, you know they, they they need to fall off a bigger cliff, don't they? For, for that to happen, we were talking about whether it was uh, um, uh, funny or not that uh, Liverpool was struggling. If they did get relegated, I would confirm that would be funny, and it's worth, <laughs> worth saying that. Mason Greenwood is no longer facing criminal proceedings over attempted rape after prosecutors dropped the case against him. The CPS said there was quote. No longer a realistic prospect of conviction after key witnesses withdrew their cooperation from the investigation. Uh, He was arrested, later charged with attempted rape after an investigation was launched in January of 2022. In a statement released on his behalf, Greenwood said, I'm relieved that this matter is now over. I would like to thank my family, loved ones and friends for their support. There'll be no further comment at this time. A CPS spokesperson says we have a duty to keep cases under continuous review. In this case, a combination of the withdrawal of key witnesses and new material that came to light meant there was no longer a realistic prospect of conviction. In these circumstances, we are under a duty to stop the case. We have explained our decision to all parties. We would always encourage any potential victims to come forward and report to police, and we will prosecute wherever our legal test is met. Uh, Jamie Jackson writing in The Guardian saying Manchester United have launched... An internal process overseen by the CEO, Richard Arnold, to determine their next steps. The club was unable to launch its inquiry until the case against Green was dropped. It's understood it could go go either way regarding the 21-year-old staying at the club. He has a contract until 2025. Um, It's a very difficult story to talk about for lots of reasons and legal reasons. Uh, We will cover it properly in depth once the internal investigation has concluded. Uh, back to the football Newcastle, West Ham was, was 1-1 Nicholas says, uh, who is the benchmark for backflip celebrations and where does Pacatar rank with his on Saturday? I'd like to put forward Lamana Trezor, Luar, Luar on, for the scale um, uh, who, who is the, who is on the top for backflip celebrations Wilson?
3: Well the two people that I always think of, Peter Beegui, I think he was the first sort of I remember doing it in the English League he had a very good loan spell at Sunderland, only four games, but he was exceptional. And then uh, Julius Agahawa, the Nigerian striker, was it? In the, was it the Olympics when he he had a habit of coming off a bench and scoring like goals? And then he would sort he of. He wasn't go, in like, the Olympics. The he was thinking of a, a gymnast
2: in the Olympics. Did he just no, no, run it, off the bench and then onto the floor and do a whole routine yeah. <laughs> with some streamers?
3: Pretty much, because he he would go about I don't know thirty forty yards just backflipping flipping constantly. He, he was remarkable at them. Um, I, th- I think Agar How is the best I've seen live. Um, Beagrie's the best Sunderland player. at him, I think.
0: Kenwyn Jones, do you remember him? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Did he used he to do
0: it. them? Yeah, he used to do them. Didn't he, score he, that he many did.
3: goals, in fairness. So uh, I know, but
0: this, you did, did do it for Sunderland, I think, and that's what they see. That's yeah. just, you've forgotten I can't about him. Catch- well, yeah. it. Well,
3: it, it's, after, it's after my time of going every week, so it's right, okay. D- Doesn't But I, I do remember him absolutely destroying. Uh, Sylvan distan, in the game against Portsmouth, once with a high landing, great with a triple pike
2: and a somersault.
3: Well, the fun with Kenwyn Jones was he was he always seemed quite placid until riled. So if a, if a defender went through the back of him early on, you're he was sort of like, oh great, he's going to be angry, and uh, he got really wound up with Distan and just absolutely destroyed him for the remaining eighty minutes. Uh, why are we talking about this? This seems like a long time ago, but
2: <laughs> like the Incredible Hulk. I mean, that's the, that is the plot of the Incredible. Don't Hulk Don't
3: make Kenwyn Jones angry. <laughs>
2: Exactly right. He, he becomes the most aggressive man in Europe. Um, uh, anyway, look, uh, Baz, credit to West Ham in this game,
4: it, 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 for staying in this game, I think, after Newcastle had that sort of blistering start. Yeah, I thought they deserved the point, and it's a pretty valuable point because uh, of how well Newcastle have been doing and, and what a fortress St. James' Park has been turned into. Uh, I... I, I I was going to say I thought Newcastle would win this game quite comfortably, but the, I think I touched on it last week. They're, they're not playing particularly well at the moment, and certainly not as well as they were before Christmas uh, or before the World Cup. So that is a bit of a worry, but I mean, it's going to be a good season for them, whatever happens, I suppose. But uh, so, uh, with, with the Carabao Cup final approaching, I would be slightly concerned about their form.
2: Uh, brilliant header from Matoma for Brighton. Unclear whether heading was part of his dissertation, and I guess Brighton fans some will well, be. Well,
3: it was quite hard because he was wearing a GoPro for me.
2: <laughs> absolutely right to so quickly move the. Well, that was off the side of his head that header, so maybe the GoPro was exactly where you head the ball. But like, I mean, I guess Brighton fans would say, "Look, we're six points behind Tottenham with two games in hand, so so shouldn't be written off." Um, and are, are still doing remarkably well.
3: Yeah, I mean. Tottenham have picked up a bit the last couple of weeks, but before that, you said there's no reason why they couldn't finish above Tottenham. So they're definitely in in the race, and and I think at the very least they should be looking at uh, at Europa League or Europa Conference League, and and that's a great thing for them, right? Because they I suspect they've never played in Europe before. They wouldn't have early '80s when they got the cup final. They wouldn't have... in '83. They wouldn't have gotten the cup on as cup United went in. Yeah, so I, I suspect they've never had a European season, so that that be That'd
2: be great for them. Uh, Tom says, who did Chelsea need to recruit in the summer? Um, They drew nil-nil with Fulham. Uh, uh, Nathan, what did you make of Enzo Fernandez? A lot of eyes on him in this game.
0: Yeah, he's good. Had a shot. (laughs) Moved the ball. Showed character. You know, it was good. And like, I think he's one of those players who will do well for Chelsea further down the road. But I don't know. It's just a weird season. I was just looking at them. They're just the ninth. Scored 22 goals. Conceded 21. Got 30 points. I was thinking, are they going to make a charge? Are they going to make a charge? I genuinely don't know, but I think that's obviously a very, that's a that's a sign with a ton of potential. I hope he manages to stay fit and he adapts to the league because I think then it's, you know, it's more eyes to watching their games because he's one of the brightest uh, young talents in world football.
2: I and mean, we should credit Fulham, shouldn't we, Wilson, really? You know, Chelsea have spent half a billion. I think that midfield, I think Harrison Reed really is brilliant centre mid and with Paulinho and Pereira as well. Th- those three have got such a good understanding, haven't they?
3: Yeah, I mean, they're just really good. They just work really well together. And, and, um, you know, the the, the rebirth of Willian uh, has has been uh, really, I mean, a big surprise as well. I just sort of thought that after Arsenal, that that was it for him. But no, he's back and playing really well. And I I saw that game, I was at that game against United just before the World Cup. And he was excellent in that game as well. His link up with uh, Robinson, the left back. That that left worked really well, so it's that's just an example of how you can build a team without spending a huge amounts of money. It just it just all fits together and works. And to, you know, the more of them and Brentford, and Brighton, obviously uh, Brent. So uh, yeah, Brentford and Brighton, the same category. The more of them you have, the, the better. Frankly, just to show that it's not all about splurging cash.
2: A tiny bit of AOB uh, on the subject of fans refusing to entertain opposition sponsors off the back of the Aston Villa fan who refused to have his windscreen fixed by an auto windscreen repair man despite being in the pissing rain for two hours with his family Uh, Elliot said um, I'm sure I remember Danny Kelly saying many years ago on Under the Moon uh, that he was trying to catch a plane with a friend but had to wait until a day later because his Manchester City supporting friend refused to travel with United Airlines
3: (laughs) (laughs) well I I haven't eaten sugar puffs since Kevin Keegan advertised in the mid 90s
2: and, and and would you have eaten sugar puffs had that not been the case
3: yeah probably i mean not not frequently they, they wouldn't have been the cereal of choice but they definitely have been on the bench
2: right okay and and, and would you ever, and you'd never have a sugar puff again and the only way would be if they sponsored sunderland
3: well I, I i think i think to be honest once you start living without sugar puffs you don't really need to go back <laughs> that's a very good point <laughs>
2: isn't it uh, Mark Langdon in a honey, most, honey Monster costume for the next live show is confirmed, <laughs> apparently. Catherine says, not a question. A ple- please do not spoil Happy Valley Season 3. Not yet streaming stateside. A major gripe with other similar TV series. Our, our apologies. Um, and Rob says, have you seen Puss in Boots 2 yet? I read The Guardian's review and it was only given two out of five. And labelled bland and forgettable. I've seen this film twice, and it is the least bland and forgettable film I've ever seen. Although art is subjective, Puss in Boots Two is not. Barrys, you have to confirm that we are not responsible
4: for all Guardian content. No, I haven't even seen Puss in Boots One, and have no plans to watch it. If Puss in Boots Two is as memorable as that listener suggests, I wonder why he has chosen to watch it twice. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good.
3: Yeah, but it was memorable. You don't need to, do you? That's
2: the point. Well, no, well, I understand, but, you know, you could be memorable and still be desperate to see it again. Maybe maybe the second time you see Puss in Boots 2, there are little things that, you know, make you enjoy it even more. But I'm with Barry. Then, I...
4: then then it's not memorable. <laughs> if you didn't notice them first or if you've forgotten them after one viewing...
2: No, I'm with you. I, I suspect you can't watch Puss in Boots 2 if you haven't seen Puss in Boots 1. You won't have a clue what's going on, will you? So perhaps we'll do a watch-along, Barry. When when there's a, the next pandemic, the first watch-along we'll do is Puss in Boots 1 and the second will be Puss in Boots 2. I feel like it's probably time to end this podcast. Uh, thank you so much, Wilson. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, Nathan. Thank you very much. Thank you, Barry. Thank you. Uh, Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. Uh, we'll do an EFL pod on
3: Wednesday.